Thanks for downloading this episode from Teachers Talk Radio. You can find the full schedule and listen back to all our shows at ttradio.org. This show is brought to you in partnership with the Happy Confident Company, who provide clinically approved, ready-to-go wellbeing and mental health programs to help your pupils thrive in only 10 minutes a day. Visit www.happyconfident.com to find out more. Enjoy the podcast. Live from York, this is The Late Show with Christopher Valves. Good evening and welcome. Tonight we're discussing the role and significance of the emotions in education with university teacher Dr Ronnie Gladden and recently retired high school teacher Wanda Davies. So join us as we explore how COVID recovery has affected emotional learning and how understanding the emotions could shape the future of learning. Live from York, this is The Late Show with Christopher Valls on Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live at ttradio.org or to join in the conversation, download the Podbean app and search Teachers Talk Radio. Follow the hashtag TT Radio. Tune in, talk it out with Teachers Talk Radio. Hello everyone and thank you for joining me this evening on what is the first day of my summer half-term holiday. Those six days in which all the tasks that have been forgotten since Easter will suddenly be completed as students in England take a nationwide break from public examinations and writing exam-inspired memes. This year's A-level timetable has thrown up some strange subject pairings with a few of my students having to sit both history and English literature exams on Wednesday, meaning that they went straight from exploring the development of 19th century German nationalism after a brief lunch break to considering the tragic events presented in Othello, Tess of the D'Urbervilles and Death of a Salesman. Consequently, these fortunate few got to spend five hours sitting in silence while writing or typing their plans, annotations and essays an entirely new experience for a cohort who had been awarded teacher-assessed grades at GCSE level in 2021. From what I can tell, the examiners were kind to our tragedy students, who were set questions that no one familiar with the broad purposes of the genre would struggle to recognise in the texts they had been taught. We're now into the strange period of settled calm that coincides with the long-anticipated public exams finally arriving. The new daily normal for our Year 11 and Year 13 students is a relatively settled pattern of breakfast, followed by revision or exams, lunch, followed by revision or exams, supper, followed by more revision, some carefully planned social time, and an early night. Those students not currently sitting public exams are reaching the end of their year's work in their subjects and are beginning to prepare for their internal exams in various subjects. My Year 9 class have just finished reading Macbeth this week and are looking forward to seeing Patrick Stewart act out the murders, sword fights and unnerving sleepwalking episodes that we have seen have spent the past month racing through. Teaching these students about kingship, monarchy and the principles of divine right 
while Britain has been in the grip of coronation fascination, has been an interesting experience and has given us the opportunity to consider the responsibilities that come with the Crown, the historical relationship between England and Scotland, and the why knowing too much about your own future might not be such a good thing after all. By contrast, my Year 12 students have been plotting their English Literature NEA independent essay projects for drafting over the summer holidays. So far, I'm expecting to see some imaginative work done on Virginia Woolf, Daniel Defoe, Daphne du Maurier, Edgar Allan Poe, Charles Dickens, Sam Salvon and John Clare, among others. Having acquired their knowledge of most of AQA's critical theories by applying virtually every one of them to a reading of the Brothers Grimm's The Four Skillful Brothers, they should now be in a good position to identify how a Marxist critic, a feminist critic and an eco-critic make sense of a wide variety of literary texts. It's not just in the classroom where things are winding to a conclusion. Last weekend marked the last chess match of the 2022-23 season with our mixed school team of current students, staff and alumni managing a creditable 28th place finish in the World Chess League. Highlights of this season included a victory over Harvard University, a draw with University of Durham alumni and a narrow 5-3 defeat to the University of Cambridge. From what I can tell, we finished as the highest placed school-based club this year and we are already looking to add to our squad for the 23-24 season. Chess has really taken off in school since last Christmas and we now have about 30 students regularly attending after lessons on Monday evenings, ranging from Year 7 students who have begun to get to grips with the basics of the game to Year 13 students who are coming along to squeeze in a couple of matches before supper to break up the monotony of exam revision. The chess renaissance seems to be upon us. This week saw us host our annual exhibition event, a two-day celebration of the college, the achievements of the students and the cultural and spiritual aspects of boarding school life. So there was a student-led production of Skellig in the theatre to attend, a variety of musical performances to hear in the music school, a formal sung mass to share in the abbey, an examination art show to explore and the CCF drill demonstrations to watch. Elsewhere, others were returning from a lengthy prize-giving ceremony, preparing for the inter-house tug-of-war competition or setting up their picnic blankets on the lawns. The exceptionally good weather meant that the sunglasses, sun hats and parasols were out in force. And at the parent and child tennis and cricket matches, people were really getting to grips with uh, the sense of sporting occasion that was there for all of us to see. Once the last kit trunks had been packed, the attention for the evening switched to the Year 13 Leavers Ball, a formal dinner and disco that usually coincides with our senior students finally realising that their remaining weeks in compulsory education can now be counted on one hand, and this year proved no different. My hazy memory of finishing college was that it wasn't over until that last final trudge homeward three different textbooks clasped together in my arms for the last time. I remember feeling somewhat dazed that we were now done with A-levels and that we had all of July and August to fill without any certain knowledge of where we would be 
in September. It was a period of mixed emotions, the relief of finishing exams and the excitement of a long summer holiday tempered with feelings of sadness for those classmates and teachers we would be unlikely to see again. No more English literature trips to London to see a playtext brought to life on stage. No more geography field trips to various southwest beaches to measure stone roundnesses and coastal erosion. No more afternoons spent reviewing the tactical shortcomings of MPs at the dispatch box in politics. Little did I know then that I would be returning to some of these very same activities within 10 years of my A-level exams, although this time it would be me booking the group theatre tickets, risk assessing walking tours of the coast and inviting visiting academics in to speak to our students. At this stage, I was pretty sure I didn't want to be a teacher. And yet here I am, and here we are, for, in the words of Pulp, circa 1996, something changed. One thing that never seems to change, however, is the degree to which the emotions continue to shape the working relationships that are forged in the classroom. And joining me on the show tonight from Ohio in the US to discuss the role of emotions in education, among other things, is Dr. Ronnie Gladden. Ronnie is a coach, actor, author and English teacher at Cincinnati Technical and Community College who argues that good teaching is about assisting students with the challenge of negotiating between the connected and disconnected points of insight, knowledge and wisdom so that they might gain a fuller sense of their own personal cosmography. Ronnie completed his doctorate in education at Northern Kentucky University and has recently published a book White Girl Within, which examines issues of race, gender, and sexual identity. Ronnie now works with a range of academic institutions and the young people they serve to cultivate a better understanding of inclusive practice in education. And I'm pleased to say we have Ronnie on the line. I thought uh, we might start, Ronnie, by opening up the conversation, then we'll bring in Wanda. When we spoke in May 2022, Ronnie, we discussed some of the emotional pressures that students were seeking to process while negotiating lockdown education and social disconnection from the physical classroom. How have things moved on where you are since then? I think it's plodding along slowly. We still have students that are attempting to make sense of the shock of what's happened, as you could imagine, in connection with the pandemic. So we have a number of students that are getting their bearings and learning how to manage all of their administrative tasks, which includes going to school, it includes going to work, it includes caregiving, and yet they have the paradox of trying to manage some level of self-care themselves. I noticed how you mentioned Macbeth earlier on in the introduction to today's podcast, and you mentioned Macbeth. And of course, the paradox of fair is foul, foul is fair is inside of that great Shakespearean work. And we can see some of those same elements playing out with the students. They're managing what's fair and foul and foul is fair with respect to their duties. Yeah, it's certainly an interesting text to be working with with our year nine students at the moment. So kind of 13 year olds, because, of course, the significant. The significant theme to some degree within the text, is the extent to which our protagonist's ambition starts to become a kind of mental disorder and that 
his desire for something that he he knows he shouldn't be able to get kind of drives him mad. That's precisely right. And when we see parallels hundreds of years later in real life, life imitating art, etc., you see some psychoses, if you will, with some students that's diagnosed and you just see a collective anxiety in terms of how do you try to grapple with a once in a hundred year global pandemic and yet you still have all of the pressures of trying to grow up and trying to make a life for the future when there's so much that's uncertain at present so yes so students are still trying to find their way but there are some that are persevering And what kind of challenges have they been exhibiting in your college context, Ronnie? The challenges that I see is one, maintaining focus. There are students that at the beginning of the semester start off with a lot of gusto. They seem to be excited to be taking courses, to be studying and preparing for their major, whether if it's going into nursing, if it's automotive, if it's audio and visual work. But then somewhere along the way, after a few weeks, maybe three, four, five weeks, when it's not new anymore, perhaps they don't just get to ride on the stimulus of just the ideas or what can be and the reality of the work, the slog that goes into preparing for exams and managing multiple classes. I think that they become a bit disillusioned with that. And especially given that there seems to be a lot of apathy on the campus and it is collective. We see it showing up across multiple majors, multiple students, and it just takes even more energy to, to sustain the momentum of being engaged with the coursework. And then even for some people having the strength to ask for help, even though we have a younger generation that seems more attuned to asking about mental health and speaking about it, there are still some that I think may have a bit of difficulty with, with seeking that. So I think those are some of the challenges with just managing that schoolwork and also managing any other sort of outside responsibilities that they may have. It's a particularly anxious period at the moment, isn't it, for those people who are, I suppose, living and studying in the West with this constant connection of media bad news stories that keeps to be coming their way. That's right. That doesn't help anywhere. You've got an incessant news cycle, and then you also have just that blinking screen that's in front of them that not only has one news story, but multiple news stories, as well as whatever else that's in the feed whatever else that they've curated, you know, we all can be siloed, we can create our own digital echo chambers. And it can be quite seducing the seducing lunar glow of the blinking screen. And then there's the content that's there that's of interest gaming content, whatever else that it is. So there's a barrage, there's a deluge. And perhaps some of that too plays into the difficulty with regard to also balancing schoolwork, you know, being there in person, being in the analog world after having been in a virtual world, you know, because of the lockdown and everyone being relegated to being effectively a streamer when it comes to education, but shifting from the digital to the analog 
it, it, it becomes quite the challenge. And we see that even in, in broader contexts as even those that are in the workforce don't want to be necessarily in the office. So there's, there's a lot that's going on. That's an interesting way of thinking about their education experience the last few years, actually. A kind of forced streaming of their lives and their thoughts. That's got to have some kind of effect, surely. I would think so. And not all of it, I would say, is bad. But given that we're still trying to find a structure around it, it just adds to the complications when it comes to what is the baseline? What is the foundation? Obviously, that was much more sacrosanct and established in 2019. But ever since then, it's been much more fluid in that regard. And when you have a culture that may be accustomed to having content that they would stream for entertainment, and then you use that same modality to trans to deliver education, you have this blurring of the two. <laughs> it sets in, I think, at some point that, oh, education is not always entertainment. It's fine if you are entertained along the way, and that certainly can happen, but that's not necessarily the primary focus. And I think that that may contribute to being disillusioned for a lot of students. This program has been brought to you by The Happy Confident Company. Our clinically approved, ready-to-go well-being and mental health program will help your pupils thrive. In only 10 minutes a day, you'll be able to deliver social and emotional learning and well-being tools throughout your school. To find out more, visit us at www.happyconfident.com. That's a nice point you pick up on, actually, because we've got clearly a number of students going through exams here in England at the moment, and the temptation for many of them is to suddenly look up something on YouTube that explains a concept that we've spent the last four years exploring in the hope that this 20-minute YouTube video will be the silver bullet that gets them through the exam. Yeah, you, you would think so. You would think so. And how do you work to establish establish the demarcation point too, to where this is for entertainment in one column, on the other hand, this is for education. And I think that we have to recalibrate, we have to reset those things and leverage that in such a way that students can make sense of it. I think it will happen, but of course it takes time. And maybe as you are experiencing with your students, they have progress, they have credit recovery, they have articulated at another level and that can be encouraging so sometimes looking at the work that you have accomplished is another way to say well now that we've completed this this cycle we can prepare for the next so i think that we will eventually make our way thanks very much i might bring in wonder on that point wonder how do things look in Canada when it comes to this challenge of students renegotiating their sense of what schooling is as a consequence of return from COVID? Yeah, it goes on a whole bunch of different levels. So if you look at it from the academic point of view, it's like students are just still unable to manage, say, all the stressors that they used to be able to manage. Um, it's just kind of like they seem to have so much on their plates and they're just totally overwhelmed. And so 
you know, compared to pre-COVID, you know, those just normal, you know, whether it was social demands or academic demands that students could hopefully work their way through. Um, nowadays, so many more students just seem so overwhelmed with all the demands on their plate. You know, and then you can also look at it from the uh, like intrapersonal view where a lot of them just lost that, um, yeah, depending on what age you're at, um, like those social skills. So that uh, being able to get along with others, the uh, um, how to, you know, approach someone in whatever age they're at, you know, as to they just kind of either regressed or they've just totally forgotten whatever skills they had. So, um, yeah, different uh, levels of things that we're still all working through. And is there a policy in Canadian schools for managing that recovery process? Um, n not in terms of a policy, but of course, it's always uh, quite often in my area too, or especially the board that I work with, it's always students first. So you're always looking to support students at whatever level that they're at um, to be able to support them. So if they're still at that not feeling safe level, um, how can we connect them so that they're at least feeling safe at school so that they can actually get to that point of being able to actually learn. Um, so there, you know, so there is different policies just in terms of supporting those students, um, being able to um, make those connections. So again, um, a lot of time I think was spent at the beginning of the year where teachers were really just trying to make the connections with students so that each student knew that they could trust that teacher for creating a safe space. So being able to everybody at least coming in at that level and, um, you know, just being able to at least being getting to the point of that being able to learn. So because that takes a lot in terms of the emotional stuff that might be going on. I think you're right. There's certainly a need to re reconnect and rebuild relationships when those students come back. Ronnie, how was the process of reconnection for you in your classroom? Well, I've tried to meet students where they are and balancing that attention spans, whether if we like it or not, have been reduced. One study I saw showed that we are just a second less than goldfish when it comes to attention spans for humans. So I try to make sure that I chunk a lot of the content that I am just that I'm presenting and developing effectively what would be segments, if you will, not unlike what we may experience inside of a podcast so that I can con connect with the students. And it seems to work and just having a multimodal delivery so I find that the students connect with that. They like seeing visuals. They like to engage their own technology. So instead of trying to fight it, you know, we leverage it. They'll use their phones. They'll use their devices in class to look up certain concepts that I'll speak to. And that helps for it to land. And then we'll reinforce it with cooperative groups. And then I'll move around the room during lecture time. And I find that that does help some, but there is still a malaise. There is still uh, a bit of a militant apathy, if you will, that is just pervasive inside of the states, period. I've seen that 
written in articles just the same and, and we're not immune at my particular institution, but it helps. I also advise some student clubs, so that contributes to, to student life on campus. And to be able to speak to that, that helps. So then it's like education isn't just limited to everything from the neck up in terms of protocols in class, but to know that there are some ancillary supports outside of class so that you can reinforce a lot of the learning outcomes, but perhaps maybe in a bit of a less pedantic way, I find that that also helps students with reconnecting. That's an interesting idea. One thing I've noticed, certainly since we returned from Christmas onwards, as I mentioned in the introduction, is the degree to which our chess club has succeeded in helping students essentially re-establish those social skills. I mean, our, our club takes place in our college library. It's a kind of old, grand, wood-panelled room with lots of kind of fancy tables and old books that go back a long, long way. And having the students from age 11 who, you know, wouldn't always necessarily be always the quietest students elsewhere in the college, they come together, they sit across the board looking their friend in the eye and they move their pieces about and it's surprising how soon the noise level drops once they're into the game and they're concentrating and again I suppose it reminds them that life is about turn-taking to some degree as well. Yeah I like that idea of turn-taking and that's no different than I think what you mentioned with Polk in terms of the quote that something changed. I mean you saw that you ended up being on the other side of the classroom, the other side of delivering the syllabus. And I think that your students, perhaps my students, they're doing the same. They're on the other side of having to be thrust into a level of introspection that otherwise may have awaited them later on in life, but they've had to grapple with thinking a bit more seriously. So perhaps a little bit of all of us are reveling in something changing in that respect. So I like that. And by the way, that environment sounds very charming that you mentioned. Thank you. Wanda, what do you think? Is this the point at which the activities that happen outside the classroom are at least as important, if not more so, than the activities that happen inside the classroom? Well, I think these days they're definitely more important. Um, the kids are still craving to kind of make up, I think, for all the social activity that they missed before. So those in-person social type of things. So whether it's um, sports or field trips or, you know, some sort of student conferencing with another classroom. So like anything that kind of puts them together is really helping um, feed their feed their souls essentially just being able to get those activities going with you know positive contacts so um, definitely um, it really has helped and, and actually one thing I was one thing I was going to add from before too was one thing that kind of has changed over time too is um, even just that fact of assessments have changed how how we look at assessments we may want to touch on that in a little bit yeah, sure. We'll we'll come to that probably in the in the next segment of the show. I was just going to ask you, Wanda, if you thought there was any kind of uh, potentially challenging issue with access to extracurricular activities, clubs, and societies in Canadian schools. It's always been an issue in the UK. There are some parts of the country where students have very easy access to quite a rich 
array of cultural and social activities and other parts where that's not the case. Is there a similar kind of debate that goes on in Canada? Um, I think our schools do provide a lot. Um, teachers kind of understand that's called, still kind of part of the school culture of which they're looking to contribute to when, whenever they are attached to a school, um, just as to how they can help support the kids, say, outside of the classroom. So whether it happens to be sports or clubs or um, whatever it happens to be. But uh, just the whole idea of um, maybe, if anything, there may be, say, less clubs like the different sports still all would be running all the different ones they would all be going through um maybe a few less clubs because i think you're still looking at in terms of uh teachers still trying to be able to do their self-care as well and they're learning not to take on as too much that they can't handle so you know teachers aren't necessarily running three clubs like maybe they used to be able to yeah, so there's been some kind of reconsideration of what uh, staff's time is worth, perhaps. Um, well, not not necessarily staff time, but staff inner resources as to how much they can handle without getting burnt out themselves. Yeah, good way of thinking about it. I think this kind of challenge of you know being well enough to do what you require to do day to day, but also making sure that you're not overcommitting. Is there something similar happening? in the states ronnie in terms of the ancillary clubs you mean or the self-care a bit of both really are our teachers looking to perhaps offer less but offer more in terms of what they offer that's a little complicated right now the college where i'm teaching is actually in the midst of contractual negotiations and there are some threats to the structure of the union, and that's not a college thing. That's also something that's happening within the state. There is quite the bit of pushback with regard to just the way that institutions work. So that's a bit of a, of a side point, but it does relate to what we're discussing. So the morale is low right now. I mentioned the militant apathy as it relates to students and them having a malaise as a result of the pandemic. And that's impacted all of us. But what's also happened is that you have a situation where there are faculty and staff where we haven't really had a raise, a, a meaningful raise in some time. And so there are people faculty side that are grappling with that. And so some people I think may be a bit on autopilot and may work just strictly within the parameters of the contract while you do have others that are still vying to be there for students with respect to clubs and with respect to being aware of mental health supports so it's a little bit split i would say right now and and i do think that that is felt by students which just creates another underpinning to the complications of where we are as we're recalibrating after the aftermath of of the pandemic but i do think that the will is there i do see around the hallways plenty of fires for various events you know to come and have some element of student life and, and it's it, it is there you do see some students 
wanting to participate, but then again, others are just distracted by a new found set of responsibilities. So it's wonky if I were to sum it up, if I were to give you a word to sum it up, it's wonky or another word is it's split. But I think that we can turn it around. I'm I'm still hoping to do so. Okay, thank you. Well, that's that's a good overview really of the state of play in both of your particular contexts and a sense of some of the challenges emerge out of this balancing of emotions and education, both for the students in the classroom, but also the people going in to deliver those lessons and the people supporting those people going in to deliver those lessons too. So that's been really useful. I think in the second half of the show, we'll explore how the academic and the emotional learning work together in the classroom and perhaps explore that idea of assessment and the constant changes to assessment that students have been experiencing too. Um, So we'll be right back after the news. This programme has been brought to you by The Happy Confident Company. Our clinically approved, ready-to-go wellbeing and mental health programme will help your pupils thrive. In only 10 minutes a day, you'll be able to deliver social and emotional learning and wellbeing tools throughout your school. To find out more, visit us at www.happyconfident.com. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and this is Teachers Talk Radio News. The debate around immigration took a turn towards education this week as the UK government announced that foreign postgraduate students on non-research courses will no longer be able to bring family members to the UK. According to the BBC, the University of Wolverhampton has already criticised the new plan. Whilst Prime Minister Rishi Sunak said the move would help bring migration down, Dr Rachel Morgan Guthrie from the university said students who came with a support network were more likely to succeed. Last year, 135,788 visas were granted to dependents of foreign students, nearly nine times more than in 2019. In the same period, 680,000 foreign students studied in the UK. There was also a division within the government as some wanted to see the ban on dependents extended to all postgraduate students, whilst others, including Education Secretary Gillian Keegan, argued that there were economic benefits both to universities themselves and the wider community. Vapes have regularly appeared as a topic of concern for many teachers, and a recent report into substances found in illegal vapes is likely to raise further issues. The BBC reports that vapes confiscated from school pupils contained high levels of lead, nickel and chromium. The results of the test showed that children using them could be inhaling twice the safe limit of lead and nine times the safe amount of nickel. High levels of lead exposure can affect the central nervous system and brain development. The majority of the vapes analysed were deemed illegal and had not been tested before being sold in the UK. So-called highlighter vapes, designed in bright colours to look like highlighter pens, contained unsafe levels of the metals coming from the e-liquid. The government has allocated £3 million to tackle the sale of illegal vapes, but critics say it is not enough to deal with concerns around the number of children gaining access to these products. In Scotland, school meal debt could be scrapped in some additional areas, 
after North Ayrshire Council agreed an action to investigate the impact the debt was having on families and schools. Head teachers of local schools are regularly reminding parents they owe money, according to the story in the Daily Record. Twelve councils across Scotland have already abolished this type of debt. The increase in families struggling with paying for meals has been attributed to the cost of living crisis. Many schools have reported parents struggling to feed children and resorting to sending pupils to school with inadequate packed lunches or, in extreme circumstances, keeping children off school to avoid accruing more debt. Finally, and staying with the topic of food, STV reports that in Glasgow, free school meals have been so popular that head teachers have had to stagger lunch times to ensure everyone can eat comfortably. The increased uptake of children in P1 to P5 accessing a free meal has again been attributed to the cost of living crisis, meaning more families are needing to access certain benefits. But at least everyone is getting a good meal and the staggered breaks have helped kitchens and dining halls to cope. This has been your Teachers Talk Radio News with Joe Fox. This is Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. Hello, this week I'm considering how easy it is to get distracted when researching on the internet. I'm putting myself in the shoes of a young person and I've set myself a task of writing a report on the greatest invention of all time. I'm also not going to use ChatGPT. So, my first online search shows a lot of people claim the wheel is the greatest invention. And let's face it, there are a lot of them around. There are 9 million bicycles in Beijing, and that's a fact. That's 18 million wheels just on bikes in one city, if we assume nobody has a tricycle. This led me to want to know how many bicycles there are in the world. The answer I found was an estimated 1 billion. That's 2 billion wheels, again, assuming nobody has a tricycle. Now I want to know how many wheels are there in the world. Another search tells me there's an estimated 37 billion, 24 of these billion being toys, and the next biggest share of 8.4 billion being on cars. A quick scan of the results page poses an additional question I hadn't considered. Are there more doors or wheels in the world? Well, I simply have to know. In a few clicks, I find out it's estimated there are 48 billion doors in the world. So based on this research, there are more doors and isn't a door a great invention? Yet it's not been proposed as one in my prior searches. And if there are that many doors, how many hinges must there be? The amazing thing about the internet is that there's always an answer. And the way search engines deliver those answers are designed to keep you interested and active. So potentially you see more ads and make them more money, which doesn't help get that report written, does it? Does your school teach young people how to research effectively? Do our young people realise how much they are advertised at? I'd love to hear your thoughts. As always, when I get in touch at TZ Radio Official, I'm Steve Woods, and that was Two Minute Tech. Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. Welcome back. I'm discussing teaching and the emotions with US college professor, Dr. Ronnie Gladden, and recently retired teacher and life coach, Wanda Davis. Ronnie's just given us a perspective on the emotional challenges that have come with COVID recovery in the US. And we've also heard from Wanda about the challenges that students are facing in schools and colleges in Canada. I wonder, Ronnie, if we might consider how those schools and colleges have sought to balance the tension between classroom education and emotional education. Is there any kind of emotional education happening in American schools? Excellent. Yes. The short answer is yes. There is a balance being sought with respect to emotional 
education. However, it's at the risk of a lot of educators. There's a particular educator in the state of Florida that was placed under investigation for screening a Disney film. And that was with the attempt to reiterate certain learning outcomes and to do so in an artful way, to do so in a way that would engage students. But it was controversial because by certain people, Disney itself and the movie itself is regarded as woke and was regarded as indoctrination. And this teacher was placed under investigation. Uh, the investigation has recently been closed. But that's just one example that, yeah, there is the attempt of teachers that are still working to engage at that K-12 level. I know that I do it. I attempt to do it at the college level. But as I also mentioned, there's new legislation now. It's designed, it's a new bill, and it just passed the Senate in Ohio, and it's designed to rein in education. So when it comes to what is regarded maybe as diversity or equity or belonging or inclusion, that is public enemy number one to some people. And so it's it's a tough time right now to, to factor in the political calculus while also attempting to to teach students. So it, it is it is a tough it's a tough time right now, but I still think that a lot of professors are seeking to bring that socio emotional learning. Thanks very much, Ronnie. Wonder, are there any similar political pressures in Canada on the way in which teachers seek to educate students in emotional regulation? Um, I think it's just more on a, you know, on a current basis. So teachers will definitely address it whenever something is needed to be addressed, say, in the classroom. Um, there will be different activities that are built in that um, students will get that social emotional learning. There is a, it isn't necessarily in the curriculum per se, but it's more on those other activities that are going on. Um, and it was interesting, just the one thing that Ronnie mentioned there, but diversity and inclusion, um, something that's been going on with uh, the local school board that I've had that, uh, you know, when they definitely, you know, they'll have different days where they're looking at diversity or, um, you know, the uh, LGBT rights, not, not necessarily the rights, but just the idea of including everybody. But um, uh, there's been student absenteeism. So, um, you know, parents keeping their children home on days when, you know, kind of that inclusion or diversity is necessarily a focus. So it's kind of interesting. Um, to see it kind of happening right now, not sure where it's going. The boards are still going on just in terms of we are going to be including this um, more as a, it's more of a, you know, kind of special day activities is kind of the way that it's been happening. So one, when one considers introducing some kind of element of the curriculum or more kind of social or emotional themed curriculum that doesn't fit within a subject area, how much direct control do schools have over what content can be delivered and how much control is exercised by state authorities or even government authorities at the national level? Hmm. Um, see, here in uh, Canada, education is by province. 
So it's not necessarily at a national level, um, but there is definitely some direction provincially um, as to what should be kind of, you know, that diversity and inclusion, those types of social emotional learnings definitely um, being included. Um, and it's also, I guess, like school board driven as well as to what focus different school boards are looking to have each year as well. So would the principal have relatively free reign on what they decide to teach as being important or is there a framework they have to operate within? Yeah, the framework would probably come within the board. So it's usually more the board wide um, initiatives that the principals would necessarily have to be following. Thank you. Um, Ronnie, when we're thinking about diversity education, we are essentially, perhaps without acknowledging it always, thinking about emotional education, aren't we? I believe so. You have to connect with the students and usually you're going to have that element of, of pathos. So there is something that is a driving element at that emotional level. There's that emotional core. Of course, we scaffold upon that. It's not just emotions. We add other appeals, but that's certainly, certainly a part of it. And yet, that's what's largely under attack because when we're talking about emotions, we're obviously talking about a lot of subjectivity. And I think there's a focus right now on being very objective. So if students have the militant apathy, perhaps from some of the legislators, they have a kind of militant objectivity. And I get we do want that, and we're already in a data-driven society more and more. We have AI. That's a whole other subject, but that only is going to reinforce the element for statistics and whatnot. But if you do all of that at the expense of neglecting that emotional core, I think you'll exacerbate some of the issues we've spoken about previously. So I think you still have to work with the subjectivity and the emotions in an appropriate way, age appropriate way, and in a way that can spur additional learning so that you can meet those learning outcomes. And how does that challenge present itself when you're working with adults and young adults in your context? I think you have to be careful not to get into the slippery slope of politics. So you're going to have people that are savvy and they already may be more defensive and thinking that, oh, here's a professor. So they're a leftist, Marxist, communist, which isn't necessarily the case at all, but that may very well be the perception. And so I think you have to approach it from a nonpartisan point of view. I know that that's ultimately what I do. I have my own personal politics for sure. But if anything, I think I go out of my way to try to present more of a nonpartisan approach with things and engaging the dynamics of the room as well, too, because sometimes I do have students that are still in high school. They're they're in dual enrollment. So I have to balance that because there are some minors at the same time sitting alongside young adults and sometimes middle aged adults and and occasionally adults that are even through to retirement age. So I have to balance that intergenerational element. But it's to 
effectively, essentially, to sum it up is to be nonpartisan and to let them know that, you know, you're here to discuss intellectual diversity and finding your own way as I help to guide you rather than you being indoctrinated. This program has been brought to you by The Happy Confident Company. Our clinically approved, ready-to-go well-being and mental health program will help your pupils thrive. In only 10 minutes a day, you'll be able to deliver social and emotional learning and well-being tools throughout your school. To find out more, visit us at www.happyconfident.com. Yeah, so, well, possibly not even so much as a guide, but a sounding board. Yeah, I like that too. Yeah. Yeah, sometimes there, there's some guidance, but yeah, ultimately I do like that approach of of a sounding board so that we create a, a, a positive echo chamber in that sounding board, you know, where we've got the enclave of we're discussing things, we're generating meaningful discourse in the classroom, and you process that, you take that, and then we position it in the parameters of the, of, again, the learning outcomes, the benchmarks what's in the syllabus, and I find that it usually works well. Okay, Wanda, so teachers as sounding boards, is that your sense of what the role might be as we move further through the 21st century? Uh, definitely, because, well, as we go on and on, there is so much more information that um, is out there, and of course we can't teach it all. So it's more looking at that kind of more inclusive type of education where, um, you know, you have a topic and each person can, you know, you're kind of providing like that bird's eye view of different areas in which a student can actually go look into more depth. And uh, usually that's kind of more on their own learning in terms of whatever projects or activities that the teacher has set up. So, yeah, it's that idea of just not you can't do it all as we're going on. Um, and that's where I think education is kind of needing to change a little bit more. Just, you know, it's that uh, so much information out there that, yeah, there's just almost too much to learn now. <laughs> yeah, I also wonder if that sounding board practice is possibly the one thing of teaching that artificial intelligence can't actually convincingly reproduce this sense sure. that you're listening yeah. to an emoting human being who's sitting uh, engaging yeah, with like, the account that you're giving them. Yeah, so the teacher's there to support the learning. They aren't necessarily going to be able to teach it all. So yeah, that, uh, that whole the idea of sounding board for uh, students to actually express what they have learned. Um, and the teacher can guide them kind of there in terms of what direction they might need to go in still. And we mentioned that concept of assessment earlier, didn't we? And the relationship between emotion and assessment. How do you see that working uh, in your context at the moment? Well, I think there's been big changes to assessment over the last couple of years. So it'll be interesting to see what direction it keeps going in. So the idea of that whole idea of um, everything's not necessarily a uh, written test or exam assessment anymore because during COVID that was more difficult to do. So they were learning, uh, you know, different approaches and different strategies. Um, a lot more experiential type of uh, assessment now happening kind of during that course of study. Um, 
you know, a lot of more that interviewing type of process as well happening. Um, and just having the student kind of present perhaps um, more in an oral or whatever choice that they want, they choose what type of way they want to uh, prove what they've learned. And so, yeah, the teachers are being that much more open to these different types of assessment now. And what role do formal written exams play now for you at age 16 and 18? Um, well, we don't necessarily have, we were just like, we have a slightly different system just in terms of the different, you know, exams say at the end of a particular course. So we don't necessarily have the uh, graduating exams that say at the end of high school, as some other countries do have. Um, you would only have those types of exams if you're trying to get into a particular course of study at the uh, post-secondary point of view. So yeah, but uh, yes, those exams are still there depending on um, the course of study that you're going into at college or university. So do you have this concept of exam anxiety in quite the same way, I wonder, as we do over here? For us, of course, our exams at 16 and 18 are a really big deal in our education mm -hmm. system. So the exams at 16, less so now, actually, because our school leaving age is now technically 18. Students in England have to be in some form of education, training or work, uh, yeah. usually kind of education related work until 18. So most students stay on beyond 16 within a school environment because that's the way the system has been set up over you know the last century so we we yeah. for us you know those exams you do at 16 are a big deal we've got some students at the moment sitting about 28 examinations or public examinations in their 10 or 11 different subjects and assessment anxiety for them can be quite real we do have to give yeah. them quite careful coaching in how to mm -hmm. deal with their breathing, deal with potential panic attacks if it gets too far advanced. Do you see those similar issues arising in Canadian schools? Well, those definite issues as the anxiety and the panic and the, you know, just not the coping skills of um, that type of stress is definitely um, seen. Uh, we don't necessarily have that particular type of stress in our schools, but it's interesting that we still have it um, because in a high school here, um, depending on what type of school that you're in, whether a student is managing four or eight courses at a time. And so that's just it. They don't need to sit exams that include all of the courses. So yeah, it's a different approach. But we still see that level of anxiety and stress, though, with even the exams that we're looking at for one particular course. Yeah, it's quite strange in the English system because students that have a semi-official or uh, formal diagnosis of exam anxiety assessment anxiety essentially get a whole series of specially tailored arrangements for the examination. So uh, some students will be sitting an exam where there are as many as 85 students doing the same examination on the same day but they have to do theirs in a special individual room separate from all of the other students or uh, they have the opportunity to leave the exam hall for a certain period for a rest break mm -hmm. and then return do you have a similar system there yes we do here in canada as well or in particular ontario for sure 
Um, I think it's kind of across the board in the country as well. But yeah, so depending on how, if a student is identified with uh, particular learning needs, um, we have what we call the IEP individual education plan that outlines exactly what uh, strategies they're allowed to take if needed during those times of stress. Um, yeah, and so whether they be writing with uh, the support of learning support teachers um, in a particular room in a school separate from their peers. How's it looking there, Ronnie? Do your students cope well with assessment anxiety? Is it an issue in your particular school? It is an issue and in some respects, the students are struggling. There are some courses that have been set up to help students with onboarding. So for instance, there's your traditional freshman composition class. And normally you would test in, but now they have some other, they've done away with some of those tests and they have some other ways of measuring if students are going to go directly into an English 101 class or what's also offered as an English 101A course, which is a blend of helping to onboard students to college level writing. And it's also a bit of what would normally be considered the traditional English 101 class. So it's a, it's a, bit, it's a bit of both. You also are seeing, especially because of the pandemic, tests that otherwise would have been required, like the ACT test or the SAT test, it's been done away with. And some of these wave, uh, waving of various tests have gone all the way to graduate school, where certain exams that otherwise would have been required for certain graduate programs, like the graduate record examination, the GRE, is no longer required. So there, there is some of that, and I think that helps to accommodate students. I think the data has been mixed in terms of how effective of a predictor some of those tests are with respect to if students will fare well in college and whatnot. So it may be a bit of uh, no taxation without representation a little bit. Students are almost demanding a bit more justification and an explanation as to, well, why is this test necessary? How is it going to, to show value or predict if I'm going to do well or not? So, so th there is that, but then there's also some institutions that are returning back to wanting to see various tests, you know, like the SAT, et cetera. Uh, the political side of it is courses that are AP designed, advanced placement or honors. Some of those classes are being removed from the curriculum in certain schools. And that's to the chagrin of some parents. So it, again, it, this recalibration that I'm speaking to it, it, it's complex and it's insidious and it's finding its way across multiple categories, including test anxiety and the sort. And for those that do have it, we offer various resources for that, you know, dog therapy or having a bit of a break or trying to stagnate things. But I think we're trying to recalibrate what's going to be consistent. So there's a lot that's up in the air. It almost makes me wonder whether the issue with assessment anxiety is about the assessment or about the emotional anxiety itself and whether we're actually targeting the right 
aspect of the problem, whether we do need a more robust emotional curriculum in our schools to perhaps develop these skills of resilience or whether in fact we would be wasting our time there and it, it's the exam that needs to change. It sounds like from what you're saying, Ronnie, that exam changes are on the cards. It does. And I think that that's definitely happening. Exams that may be more culturally proficient. That's something that's there culturally competent. That's an issue. That's been a long-standing issue, but that has a lot of political steam around it at the moment. Also, in terms of, yes, are we having a holistic approach effectively? We, we do want the socio-emotional element that's woven into the curriculum, yet we also, of course, still want to have rigor. We still want to be able to have some level of objectivity and to be able to have metrics that are accurately assessing the student and seeing more of that. So when you mentioned AI earlier, you know, perhaps that's another way that that ultimately can be leveraged, that we may be doing more curating as educators combined with AI that may help to further personalize and optimize what will be useful for the students. I remember Wanda mentioning IEP. We have that in the States as well. And perhaps more of that will be extrapolated. So that's not just limited to a certain demographic of students, but ultimately that may very well find its way into the curriculum in the years ahead where there is a bit of a more individuated approach to learning so that we can tap into the strengths of students and, and figure out what, what works so as we attempt to balance the socio-emotional element of learning. Yeah, it's interesting. It brings up as well, I suppose, the issue of where the teacher fits into that wonder, because I think every teacher that is particularly committed to their job is not just an educator of their students, but a cheerleader for them too. And that comes with an emotional cost, doesn't it? Oh, exactly. Yeah, because that's what teachers go into teaching for, right? It's more that um being able to uh, support the students in their learning so it's that support rule or support role that um, sometimes is more important than the actual content that they're teaching and if we think about what the future holds in terms of developing new teachers Wanda in the Canadian system to what extent do you see people signing up to be those cheerleaders and educators um, I think, well, we've been having um, essentially a teacher shortage here in Canada. Um, not as many people have been signing up to become teachers because they understand like here in Canada, yeah, you get the two summer months off, but uh, um, it is a tough job in terms of being there for your students every day, all day, and then having to come home to your families as well. Uh, my own, um, one of my sons actually just graduated, um, finishing up his teaching college degree. Um, yeah, and he's going into it as a uh, second career already as well. And so he does have that maturity of kind of knowing what it's all about rather than some of those that go into teaching more for, um, you know, that helper role. I need to be able to help others. Um, yeah, so it's... 
I think it all depends on sometimes the uh, outlook of the uh, teacher candidate as to what they're going into teaching for. And what was it that caused your son to make the change? Well, he was in accounting before and essentially he found it boring. <laughs> so I think he was definitely looking more for um, that social interaction with other people. Um, and he's uh, he can definitely see things from um, like a big point of view. And so I think he'll uh, enjoy doing it kind of surprised us originally when he mentioned teaching, but I can understand about how he um, really likes the uh, uh, the challenge of being able to come up with different teaching strategies in order to be able to get different points across. So I think he will excel in terms of thinking up different things in order to engage students. Well, that's certainly cheering to hear, Wanda. It's good to hear that we've got excited, passionate people coming into the profession um, for the future because we're going to need them as, as we're seeing, I think, across England and the United Kingdom, I think across America from what I can hear from what Ronnie is saying, that it's not perhaps considered the attractive career it once was. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Um, and, and here in Canada as well. Because as I said, there's been a teacher shortage here for uh, quite a few years. And it's, uh, yeah, as uh, teachers really are just burnt out. Well, we've covered a range of different ideas here in relation to teaching emotions and education. So I wonder if we might, in the final section of the show, Ronnie and Wanda, consider how our schools and colleges might better equip themselves to manage wider issues associated with emotional well-being and self-expression. And we'll be right back after this. This programme has been brought to you by The Happy Confident Company. Our clinically approved, ready-to-go well-being and mental health programme will help your pupils thrive. In only 10 minutes a day, you'll be able to deliver social and emotional learning and well-being tools throughout your school. To find out more, visit us at www.happyconfident.com. Welcome back to the final part of tonight's show on teaching and the emotions. Wanda Davis and Ronnie Gladden have given us a strong sense of how the emotions can affect students' engagement with their academics and social learning from their own classroom experiences and how so much of what happens in educational settings depends for its success on effective relationship building. In the final section then, I'd like to think about what more education providers might do to harness the positive power of the emotions to enhance teaching and learning. But first, have Western education systems missed the opportunity offered to us by the COVID recovery to rethink the reasons how and why we continue to do teaching and learning in the way that we do. Wonder, have we missed an opportunity here to do a bit more in terms of redevelopment than we have done so far? I don't think so at the early levels of education. I think teachers have kind of really, you know, during the COVID times, they really had to be um, very inventive in order to be able to um, 
you know, look at how to teach, how to, um, you know, differentiate, um, and then how to assess. And I think some of those um, different strategies and skills that they were building on during those years have definitely been put in place. And uh, I think we're seeing a little bit of a change in uh, both the elementary and secondary levels here in Canada. Ronnie, how about you? What about the American education system? Could it have done with more of a shakeup than it's received? Perhaps it could have. I think at the other end of the educational spectrum, looking at the numbers, and this was even before the pandemic, but certainly afterwards, the numbers have dropped precipitously. There's an enrollment problem in most colleges and universities and a lot of students felt like they weren't quite getting the value that they were paying for and that became abundantly clear during the streaming of classes so i think that there is an opportunity to restructure in that way in higher ed to show how the content is of value and to improve the quality controls of the of the deliverables in that respect Yet, of course, I mean, the institutions, I think, are steeped in technology. I know at least in higher ed, even in a lot of K-12 schools as well. I mean, there's vast resources that are there, but it's, it's mobilizing things. In higher ed, sometimes what happens is a lot of universities think in centuries, not all of them, but a lot of them do. And if there's any time to disrupt that paradigm, it, it of course, would be now so it's just a way to better operationalize the the goods to meet the the challenges that we're in. so does there need to be more done too then on upskilling the human resource much as i hate that term the people that make the whole education system work there would need to be some of that is tied into what technology is going to do in that way, which is really a big question mark. So that way, that's difficult. But in the interim, sure, you know, provide more discussion opportunities, discourse opportunities, symposia, colloquia around this, town hall meetings, things along those lines to create maybe a story bank, if you will, from the stakeholders, of course, including the students, so that you can see some themes that need to be isolated and then targeted and then spoken to so that there is a new level of dynamics or dynamism, if you will, that's inside of education. So yeah, I think continuing to talk about it and creating the forums that can collect the narratives and responding accordingly would be a good a good way to start. So a greater space for student voices by the sound of it. I think so, those student voices and further amplifying them. They already have some ways of of speaking, but maybe delivering even more on what it is that they have to say to show that you're serious. Thank you. Wanda, how about where you are? Is there more that needs to be done in terms of supporting staff to be able to effectively help students regulate emotions, deal with some of these challenges they're facing and 
assume a new confidence in encountering them. Oh, definitely. Um, both from the perspective of training of teachers for them to be able to feel more competent in order to be able to do, you know, the social emotional learning piece. Um, but and as well as resources to being able to have more resources for these teachers to be able to use and students to be able to use, um, whether they're in the classroom or just in the school. But of course, there's the funding question as well, right? So um, in Canada, we're also probably looking at, as I said, it's provincially funded. And in most provinces, we're also looking at um, decreased funding going towards education, uh, at least public education anyhow. And, um, you know, so usually schools and teachers are having to do more with less. So I don't see, um, you know, this would be a great opportunity to get those resources and, you know, different things, um, professional development happening, but I really don't see it happening with the uh, decreased funding that's happening. Are there any specific areas where you think Canadian schools could do more in terms of that emotional support for students? Um, definitely resources, I think, would be um, very helpful. So whether that's um, different books in the classroom or the library or um, different activity kits that teachers could be using to be able to just give those teachers that don't, you know, whether it's the new teacher or whether it's a teacher that doesn't have the confidence in order to be doing the social emotional learning or how to be able to weave it into the other course content. Um, so that's kind of, I think, would be great to have more of. And if we were able to pick up some of these emotional challenges that students face earlier, what kind of positive benefits do you see that is having for school communities overall? Um, uh, so being able to pick up uh, student learning problems at the beginning, is that what you mean? I think the issues around emotions, so kind of working yeah. with those students on emotional learning really, really early, because in some schools, I mean, my school, for instance, we take students in nearly every age group in the school. So some of them we will have only seen for perhaps three months before they have to go in and then sit a quite high stakes public right. examination. Are there any ways in which schools can be better at communicating information about emotional needs of students to one another within the system? Um, well, it's definitely needed. And especially with communication with parents as well, because of course, learning can be happening at home as well. Um, being able to have um, both the parents and the schools kind of on board with the same ideas would be quite helpful. Again, um, being able to give those resources. Um, so yeah, students definitely are coming in with um, different issues and they're looked at, you know, whether there's, um, you know, learning support teachers that are involved with uh, different children right from uh, the very beginning or as um, issues um, continue to develop, whether uh, students are definitely flagged for, um, you know, having different special needs so that they can be better supported. So yeah, just different ways of being able to support the students. But again, it all comes down to never enough um, for what the needs that are there. And Ronnie, how about where you are? Are schools, colleges and universities particularly good at communicating between one another about the student you're about to receive returning from university or the student you're about to take from high school? 
I think there have been a lot of quality controls in that way. The short answer is yes. For instance, in Ohio, most, if not all, of the public colleges operate on a semester schedule. So the idea is that if you have students transfer from one institution to the other, they can do so rather seamlessly and have minimal disruption in the educational process. So their English 101, if they were in week three of that in the semester at University A, they can go to University B in that same state and pretty much pick up from where they left off in terms of the content so that there is a kind of wraparound support, continuity of services in that way. Also, I mentioned earlier in the podcast about dual enrollment. And with that, yes, we are privy to knowing more about the needs of students even before they may become a full-time student in higher education. So we can see their test scores. We have more of a sense of their profile, and that certainly helps. And you're probably hearing now about the phenomenon of, in a lot of cases, high school students graduating with their college degree, their associate's degree, even sometimes slightly before they're earning their high school diploma. So in some ways, I think it's it's really good in that way. But yeah, there's still more to do in terms of that emotional piece. And that does go back to discussions. It goes back to having a more holistic curriculum. And I think that there are some measures being taken for that. And certainly for those brave educators that still say, I want to incorporate that holistic piece inside of my classroom with that emotional component, in spite of what it may be perceived as politically, I think that, that those brave educators are, are helping to connect with students, especially when they clearly need it. And how do you manage with those students going both ways between high school and back from university surely they are potentially going to present with different emotional needs aren't they they are and that's why i'm really adamant about making sure that there is age appropriate sort of content in the class and even sometimes just just checking in because we do have those students that are young adults and they may say certain things in the classroom and I will pause for a moment. I'll, I'll pause the student and I'll check in with those that are still in high school and say, are you okay? Does, is, this, is this something that you're confident with hearing? If I think that maybe they've gone a little bit too far, I'll redirect, meaning the college student that's of age, if they've gone a little bit too far and certain things they mentioned, I'll redirect the conversation. I'll provide some context. I'll provide a little bit of light-hearted banter so as to diffuse or just engineer a situation where it doesn't get too charged or anything. So I'm very, very adamant about making sure that, that there's um, a positive, wholesome sort of environment that's, that's in the class, but at the same time posing questions so that rigor is still there so that we do foster a critical consciousness at the same time. Yeah, we do have to be careful, don't we? Because, you know, very few educators are actually trained therapists. And if we're not careful, the line could get blurred. That's, that's exactly right. And, you know, while that may not be the fundamental part of the job, you know, we're professors, we're teachers, 
we're not necessarily social workers, but the irony is the burden is still there. You, you do have a, a populace, which can be parents, it can be administrators, what have you, that I think do expect that we as educators may have some kind of trauma-informed care, which there are workshops for that, or that we are caught up on whatever is evidence-based in terms of what's good for the psychological side of how we deliver the education. Fortunately, I'm naturally interested in those things, so I, I certainly try to, to read up on that. But again, and I'm sure Wanda will attest to this, there's plenty of things that we have to do as educators, and it can certainly be tough, and that's that's on the list. So we're, we're not social workers. We're, we're teachers and educators first, but that is an important underpinning is to have that sort of um, mindset of, of how we can work with students emotionally. Did you want to come in on that one, Um, Yeah, I was in total agreement, actually, because, um, of course, there are social workers, psychologists that are on staff within schools, but usually they have such a long list of um, before people can be referred, you know, and from there, if they can't get into there, at least the learning support teachers usually, or, or at least um, you also have guidance counselors, which also will look at in terms of like, do have some usual, some counseling training um, at the high school level um, in order for students to be able to talk to. But um, again, there's only so many people that can go around. So yeah, the teachers do have to take kind of take on at least a bit of uh, that support for students. But yeah, you, they always have to do be aware of, you know, we are not counselors, we are not therapists. So you can't like, to you have to, you know, not cross the line in terms of um, what support that you're actually offering. Um, no, it's it was noted too that um, it was interesting, like trauma-informed care that Ronnie mentioned there, of course, was a uh, big, um, a lot of professional development about that in the board that I'm in in the last year or so. Um, just being able to have that many more teachers being more aware of the possibilities of situations that might, might be coming up against. So again, it's that awareness is um, at least a start. And of course, they can always refer the student to someone else if they're you know not comfortable in terms of talking to the student about it either. I suppose there's also the issue of listening as well as the talking, isn't there, Wanda? Is there a difference yeah. between the kind of listening we think that teachers do, that therapists do, and that coaches do? Um, well, well, first of all, it's just that knowing that you are there, you know, letting students know they're there to be a listener. Um, and then in terms of what type of listening happens, it doesn't necessarily matter because it's going to help the student knowing that they will be heard by somebody. Sometimes that's a, a very important thing for students to be able to understand that uh, they can actually trust at least to be able to talk to other people in the school as needed. So whether that's the teacher or the counselor support, but um, yeah, the things, the way it's more, they can all listen, but it just comes down to how whatever the support person, how they're going to respond is going to be different according to the different types of training that they've received. I agree. And there's also, I think, 
a sense that listening can be quite emotionally draining for staff as well. So do you think, Wanda, there are any ways it could be mitigated? Are there any ways that that emotional strain could be managed or processed uh, more helpfully for teachers involved in those scenarios? I think teachers just need to be more aware of what is their stuff and what are other people's stuff. So having to be able to um, seek out help for them to understand that if needed. Um, I think there's been a lot more, um, you know, kind of just discussion about being more self-aware, uh, being able to help self-regulate your own emotions, making sure it's like, why are we responding in this way versus reacting that way? Um, just being able to, yeah, just having teachers being able to understand what they're feeling. Sounds to me then, Bronnie, I don't know if you agree with this, that perhaps the thing that might save us from being replaced by artificial intelligence is our emotional intelligence as teachers. That is exactly right. I really think that that's going to be a premium is having that sort of human to human connection. All of the things that are intangible, all of the things that happen when you have those kind of inner dynamics of the interpersonal that is very human and at least at present that's very difficult to automate so that is going to be essential and clearly it's needed right now because there's also plenty of reports out i don't know if it's in canada but i know it's here in the states to the point where the U.S. Surgeon General has spoken to a loneliness epidemic. I, I believe that you have a loneliness czar in the U.K., if I'm not mistaken. And so that's an issue that is already a challenge on top of everything else that we've been talking about. So I think that that human connection piece is... Thank you. Yes, we do have someone working currently on trying to eliminate loneliness in the UK. I think they might have a mission on their hands. Wanda, what do you think then? Is our emotional intelligence going to save us from the threat of artificial intelligence? I love the way looking at that. I think it really will. Um, but it comes down to different individual teachers understanding what their level of emotional intelligence is. Um, you know, because, of course, it's a word that's been around for quite a few years now, but a lot of people still kind of don't have that total concept of um, their, um, how can you put it, what their levels are, um, their level of competence in terms of supporting others through emotional intelligence. So, but I think it really would help for different teachers to be able to seek different ways in order to increase their own emotional intelligence because that's going to help them be able to regulate their own lives as well. Well, thank you, Wanda. I think that's a great note to finish on. Um, thank you very much, Wanda and Ronnie, for your generous contributions this evening. It's clear that many of our schools and colleges are working hard to provide their students with the emotional support and development opportunities that the 21st century seems to be demanding of us all. I still wonder how many government education departments really see emotional education as a priority now that public examinations have returned to near pre-COVID normal. Certainly 
in the UK. And you've certainly given our listeners some important ideas to consider in the months ahead as we prepare for a new academic year after the summer break. So thank you both very much indeed. Well, thank you very much for having me here today. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. It's been great to have you both. It's been a really good show tonight. Thank you very much. I hope the rest of the term goes well for you both. Thank you and you as well. Thanks. Nice to meet you, Wanda. Thank you. Bye. Take care. This program has been brought to you by The Happy Confident Company. Our clinically approved, ready-to-go well-being and mental health program will help your pupils thrive. In only 10 minutes a day, you'll be able to deliver social and emotional learning and well-being <coughs> tools throughout your school. To find out more, visit us at www.happyconfident.com. Well, thanks to Dr. Ronnie Gladden and Wanda Davis for being such great guests this evening. I hope you found tonight's uh, show as thought-provoking and instructive as I did, and that you will have some time to replenish your own emotional stocks if you're taking a well-earned half-term break this week. Thanks to everyone who has tuned in tonight. Do check out our other Teachers Talk radio shows this week. Mary Greenhall has a timely show looking at the role of assistive technology in the classroom with Alex Edwards on tomorrow's morning break show at 11 o'clock. And Tula McCarthy will be looking at the vexed question of commercially produced schemes of work on Wednesday, the 31st of May at 7.30pm on Twitter Spaces. You can catch up with anything you've missed with our excellent and ever-growing panel of teacher presenters at www.ttradio.org and if you have something you want to say or ask others about education here in the UK or further afield then perhaps you should consider applying to join the station as a show host. We are always on the lookout for those with current or recent experience of the classroom and other less familiar educational settings Full details can be found on our website, www.ttradio.org. That's all from me for this month, so thank you for listening. I wish you and your students good luck with any remaining exams and look forward to speaking to you again in June. Goodbye. You've been listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio.